0: uncertain climb on when the rocks become sharper and tear at your feet climb on when rain clouds threaten and the fierce winds howl climb on when the air grows thin and each breath takes more effort climb on when the crowns turn back and the path becomes lonely climb on When your faith is pushed to its ultimate limit, climb on. That's right, my friend. Climb on. A reward awaits for all those who refuse to give up. For all those who reach the summit. Life Trails. Take the next step.
1: To watch that video from 73 Church down there in Guyana, but I found myself wanting to go back. And uh, like I missed those people. And I don't know if maybe you realize this or not or recognize one of the people in that video was Fabi, the wife of the pastor who, when I was down there, was just leaving to go to Brazil for cancer treatments. And she has a completely clean bill of health. So Fabi and John are back at number 73 Church. Devin and Leon, two of the guys in that video, had replaced John as the pastor there on an interim basis. John's back now, but in January, we'll be starting another church in Guyana, and Devin and Leon will be replacing him as the permanent pastors there at uh, Number 73 Church. And here's the best part about this, is in February, hopefully the end of February, start of March, first of that week, where it flips right there. We're hoping to take a missions trip down there. So some of you would be interested in something like that, we're getting the ball uh, rolling on that and getting the wheels turning and love to have you go down and join what's happening down there at number 73 church down in Carriverton, down in uh, Guyana. But I was thinking about going back. You ever go back places and it's like not quite the same as what you remembered it? Maybe you've gone back to like a childhood home, or maybe you've gone back to like the university you graduated. I went back several times to South Bend. Obviously, I I grew up there, lived there for over 30 years, and and especially when my dad's health was declining so much there, went back several times. But it had been a long time, and it was like, it wasn't quite the same as what I remembered it. Um, I went back to the church where we got married. It's not there anymore. They just raised it after the Hindu temple bought it. There you go, and uh, so uh, I don't, uh, that's one of those weird things. I did a lot of ministry there on the Notre Dame campus, and I go back to the Notre Dame campus, and it's like totally different. Like Juniper Road used to go right through the middle of campus. It's not there anymore. They just took it out, turned it all into a pedestrian mall, and now if you want it, you have to drive around it. I went back to the house that we owned when I left. And I had this big, nice front yard, and I really like grass and green grass, and I was on a well, and so I could just run my sprinklers to my heart's content, and I went back to my house, and it was like, what did you do to my lawn, guys? And, and I'm, still, I'm still struggling with that even now, but sometimes we go back, and it's just not quite the same. Well, we're going to go back this morning to where we were last week. And it's not the same, because between last week and today, 1,500 years elapse. But we're going back to that place in the middle of Israel that uh, we just uh, went to last year, uh, week. We were going to go back to the same mountain. And as we go back, we're going to experience two hikers. And this is going to be a little bit different from last week because last week, as we left the scene, there was a half million people up on one side of a mountain and a half million people up on the other side of the mountain, and they were shouting back and forth, "Amen, Amen!" And we see this, this just this incredibly loud, raucous crowd. And as we get there today, there's just two people, and they're just having a quiet conversation. And there's a lot of things that have happened between then and the now, as we look at the scripture here this morning. We're going to be looking in John chapter 4, so I want to encourage you to go there. We're going to read through a lot of this story here this morning, but the two people that are hiking there, one's actually hiking down south from the mountains. We don't actually know her name. It's a woman. She's pretty well known, even though we don't have a name for her, and the person hiking from the south Working his way northward from Judea, somebody we all heard his name—that's and that's Jesus himself—and this is the story of the woman at the well. Now, last week we told the story that maybe a few of you have heard or maybe familiar with, and uh, I had never heard a message on that. I had somebody who, afterwards, who'd been to church—I think you know most of his life—said, "I have never heard a message on that before." This is one of those ones where we have heard a message about. This is the story of the woman at the well. But the question I want to start with here this morning is why did John put this story in the Scriptures? And when John wrote his book, he actually wrote his book much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which were the Gospels that we had about the life of Christ. And when John wrote his book, he covered different material. And he had a different purpose, but he gets to the end of his book in chapter 20, verse number 31. He says, you know, I suppose if I were to write every story about the life of Christ, it would be volumes and volumes and volumes but he said, I just picked out a few of these stories to really show you who Jesus Christ was and is. And so he includes this story, the woman at the well. It doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture. It's just in the Gospel of John. But the unfortunate thing, I think, for us this morning is it's because it is familiar. We're like, oh, yeah, I know that story. And because we've heard it many, many times, like, yeah, I know what that story is about. And, and we kind of have our, our prejudices and our... our um, our preconceived notions of what it's about and our perspectives. And I want to ask us this morning to set those aside and to ask this question, well, what's here in this story that maybe I've never noticed before? And what's here in this story that makes a difference to me not 1,500 years after Joshua 8, but 2,000 years after the, when this story actually takes place? And so I want us to notice, first of all, as we go through the story, the woman at the well... I want us to notice the condition of the woman. I want us to notice the conversation that she had with Jesus Christ. And then I want you to notice how this story continues on. And still, 2,000 years later, we are talking about it today. And why are we talking about it? So hopefully you had a chance to get to John chapter 4. We're going to start reading in verse number 1 here. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it wasn't Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. So he left Judea. And he went back once more to Galilee. He went up north. We talked about that back several summers ago. That most of Jesus' ministry is actually up in Galilee. Well, if you look at the nation of Israel, it was separated into two sections. And you throw this map up here for me. This isn't the greatest for you to see, but I think we can make do with it. So my little dot there. Right there are the two mountains that we talked about last week. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And as we get to this story, we're at this little place here called Sychar. But if you look at this map, down here, Judea, is one main segment of Israel. And you can see Jerusalem is the capital right there in Judea. And then up here is Galilee, around the the Sea of Galilee right there. And this is where the majority of Jesus' ministry happened. But this country was split in two by this region here called Samaria. And as we'll go on here, we'll discover a little bit more about this region. But when they went back and forth, they traveled between Judea and they traveled up to Galilee, back and forth. But they didn't like to walk through Samaria, and there was a reason for that, which we'll get to. But it says that Jesus, in verse 3, went back once more to be in Galilee. He had been down in the southern part here. He was going back to the northern part. And it says in verse number 4, he had to go through Samaria. Now, why did he have to go through Samaria? Well, I think the obvious answer becomes apparent as we go on in the story. It's because he needed to connect with this woman who comes to the well. But I think it's about a lot more than that. And we'll see that as we go on in the story, too. Verse number five. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So now we're going to go even further back there into history. This is 500 years even before the time of Moses and in, in, uh, in Joshua that we talked about last week. Joshua, uh, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by this well. It was about noon when a Samaritan, and notice that word Samaritan woman, came down to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now his disciples had gone into the town to buy some food. It's a fascinating opening line there, though, isn't it? Basically, Jesus says to this woman, hey, could you do me a favor? Well, the Samaritan, there we have that word again, Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans? And that's in parentheses. So John's adding that comment there. Four times, though, we were just um, instructed of the fact that she was a Samaritan. So John's writing this. He's like, hey, don't miss this. We're talking about a Samaritan here. Well, see, here's the interesting thing about this story. Evidently, Jesus had a different view of Samaritans than everybody else that lived in Judea and Galilee did. Everybody else who lived in Judea and Galilee avoided Samaritans at all costs. In fact, as you look at this map here, generally speaking, when they wanted to go from Judea down here up to Galilee, They wouldn't go the obvious way right through here. They would actually cross over the Jordan River and go up here through Perea until they got to Galilee because they wanted to avoid Samaria and not the land. They wanted to avoid the people there at all costs. Well, the Samaritan woman said that to him. What, you're a Jew and and I am a Samaritan? Why are you talking to me? She's surprised and she's commenting on some irregularities. But it's not just... I'm a Samaritan, you are a Jew, and Jews don't associate with Samaritans. It goes a step further. It's that I am a woman, and you are a man, and it may have even been obvious that he was a a teacher or a rabbi, and you know what? In the society today is, you know, I'm a second-class citizen here. Why are you as a man talking to me? We don't do that in society. But it may have, and I think, gone deeper than that. She was standing there. She was a person who was a moral mess. And we'll see that in a minute in the story here. And you know what? Spiritual people don't associate with messy people. And so Jesus is breaking down these stereotypes as he stops to talk to this woman. But let's just think about this. Because he broke down these stereotypes, and we're talking 2,000 years ago, that we're still struggling with here in today's world. And he broke down some stereotypes that we're still struggling with in today's church as well. Because the issue of Jews and Samaritans, that was an issue of race, and that was an issue of racism. And we continue to see that as an issue even in today's world where we separate from different people groups because they look different from us or because they talk different from us or because they come from a different place from us or because they may even have a different view from us and we separate ourselves from those people. This is why I think it's so important what we're doing with New Springfield Church and some of us were down there yesterday helping to pass out food and and distribute with an African-American congregation. Because we need to come together. We need to become part of the solution here. But we also see the the struggle that the church has with misogyny and patriarchy. And we've seen a lot of progress in the world. And the church needs to catch up, to be completely honest. And we're watching a horrible story unfold in the Southern Baptist Convention. And we can say, oh, good, that's not us. But it's part of us. And we need to be reminded that we have a lot of work to do there in, in that area. And then we can get to the last one here where we're like, well, you know, the moral messes, at least we don't have those going on in the church, I hope. But you know what we do have going on? We have a lot of self-righteousness and we have a lot of what I would call a condemning spirit when we're looking down at everybody and where instead of seeing the need that people have, we we say, oh, I gotta stay away from that. And so I think when Jesus says, I gotta go through Samaria, he's making a point here. He's like, you know what? These are going to be issues that are going to be issues that are going to be issues. And I'm making a statement right here and now. And John records it so that we can be brought back to that. But I'm not sure that's the biggest point in this passage, even though it's an important point in the passage. But we read here, this woman says, how can you be talking to me? And Jesus says, you know what? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, he's saying, you know what? Don't worry about that the stuff that you're worried about, I'm not worried about. I've got something different. I've got a different subject that I want to talk about here. And you, you know, you could have asked me for water. Well, this is confusing to the woman, because just a minute ago, he was asking her, and now she's supposed to be asking him, and she checks it out. She's like, well, she says this, sir, uh, you don't seem to have anything to draw with, and the well is deep. But where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? And, And she's getting really confused here, but Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he starts to steer this conversation in a spiritual direction. It started out very materially talking about water. Now he starts to steer in a spiritual direction. And what he hints at here is simply this. You have to keep coming back to this well, don't you? And the woman said, well, sir, give me this water so I don't have to get thirsty and I don't have to keep coming back to this well to draw water. But she's not totally tracking because Jesus isn't talking about coming back to this well physically. He's talking about coming back to this well relationally. So we go on here, and he says, go call your husband and then come back. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, well, you're right when you say you have no husband. If we're going to tell the truth here, though, you have five husbands, right? And the man that you're living with now, he's not your husband. What you said is quite true. And Jesus makes his point, And the point is what? You keep coming to this well. I'm not talking about Jacob's well you keep coming to this well of relationship because you're looking for significance. You're looking for acceptance. You're looking for love. And you're not finding it. But you just keep showing up time and time again, not at this physical well, but at this well of all of these men. And whether they were dumping her and moving on from her, or whether she was dumping them and moving on to the next thing that came along, we don't really know. But what we do know is that she kept going back to the same well, and she was not satisfied. Verse number 19, she says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And I've heard this all the time as I was growing up and this story taught well, she was trying to change the subject and divert Jesus' attention away from the fact that she had all these moral problems going on. I personally don't think so. I think what she's realizing here is like, oh, you know what? Maybe somebody can help me. And so she takes that conversation where she thinks her help is. Like, let's talk about religion because, you know... Ultimately, that's what we need to do when we have problems. We need to turn religion so we can get a fix here. And she refers to something. She says, "My, your, our, our ancestors worshiped God on this mountain. Well, which mountain is she talking about? She's talking about Mount Gerizim. And what is she talking about? It's not exactly clear. She might be talking about all the way back into Genesis chapter 12 when Abraham arrives in the promised land and God says, I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to give you children and through you all of the world will be blessed. Where that story took place was in the valley there at the base of Gerizim. So it could have been that she's referring to that. It could have been that she was referring to what we talked about last week in Joshua chapter 8 where all of the Israelites gathered on the sides of the mountains and declared by their amens that we are going to serve God. And it could have been that she was actually talking about something more recent, because here's the story, and here's why the Samaritans were so much on the blacklist when it came to the Jews. After Solomon was the king, the kingdom of Israel separated into two halves, or two parts might be a better way to say that. You had the southern part, which became the southern kingdom, makes sense. That was Judah and Benjamin. And the other ten tribes went the other direction, became known as the northern kingdom. But the southern kingdom was known as Judah. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. And they split in half. And that's how things went on. Well, both both sections turned away from God. And God sent in different armies, though, to take them into captivity. In the northern part, and basically everything north of Jerusalem there, was attacked by and captured by the Assyrians. The Assyrians took some of them back away to Assyria, and then they brought other people in and they replaced them, but they defeated the northern kingdom that way. Well, it was a while later when the Babylonians came and took the southern kingdom and did the exact same thing. They took some people back to Babylon, like Daniel is probably the one that we know the most, and they sent other people in their place to come and populate these areas. And that's how these, these huge empires did their thing they, they would weaken it by taking out the key people and they weaken it further by by putting other people in their place well the the southern kingdom came back and that's people like Ezra and Nehemiah they led the people back and they reestablished Israel there but the northern kingdom never really came back And, uh, in fact, they talk about them as the lost tribes. And some people kind of worked their way back and assimilated. But when the southern kingdom came back, some of the northern kingdom people were like, hey, could we be a part of this? And the answer was like, well, no, not really, because in the meantime here you have married foreign women and you've got this whole Jewish-Gentile thing all mixed up here. And so there was all kinds of friction that came out of that. And the Samaritans were like, fine, and they went off, and they started worshiping on their own. Well, Jerusalem was off limits, so they went to a place called Shechem, which is between Gerizim and Ebel, and they built themselves a temple there. Fine, if you're you're not going to let us worship in Jerusalem, we'll build our own temple, and we will worship in Shechem. And this became the friction between these two people. But when she refers to this, she could be referring to any of those three points in history. We don't really know. But whatever she's saying, even that last one is like, you know what? We worship in Shechem. You worship in Jerusalem. What's the right place? Which church am I supposed to go to? It's basically what it comes down to. And notice what Jesus says in in answer here. Verse number 21. Woman, he replied believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. His point is, you're all hung up on places. Now, here's a question for all of us, alright? How many of you have worshipped on, uh, uh, on uh, Gerizim? Here? How many of you have worshipped in Jerusalem? Okay. And we have worshipped. And this is what Jesus is talking about. It's like, these places here are not going to become a big deal. By the way, Pastor Mark in like next Sunday is leaving to go to Israel for a week and one of the places they're going to be going on their trip is to Gerizim. So he may be able to actually come back and say hey I've worshiped on Gerizim. I told him I wanted to stand in the mountains and yell and if people, see if people can hear him on the other mountain. I want to see how that works but I can't wait to hear about his trip. I think it's going to be a, a great time. You guys could be praying at least a week from today for that. But Jesus goes on He says the Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. What's he talking about? Salvation comes down through the line of Abraham all the way down to Christ and here I am. Yet a time has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. Anybody can be a worshiper. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. Your heart matters more. It doesn't matter what your gender is. Your heart matters. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what your reputation is. Your heart matters. And Jesus said, anybody can worship. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The answer isn't religion. The answer is a relationship. And this woman still doesn't have any clue what's going on, but she says this. She says, well, I do know that when the Messiah comes, He will explain everything to us, and it will finally make sense to all of us, won't it? And Jesus says, speaking. (laughs) And just as they're about to take this conversation to an entirely new level, the disciples show up. Isn't that the way, always? You're having a great conversation with someone, and here they come. And uh, they return, verse number 27, and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Not only a woman, a Samaritan woman, but nobody asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? They were probably too afraid to, but I'm sure there were a lot of sideways glances going back and forth between them. What is he doing here? She probably decided this was a good time to make her exit. So she hustled on out of there. She went back to the town and she said to the people, and I think this phrase right here is key to the whole story, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come meet this person, come meet this man who's the first man that I've ever met who cared about me for me instead of what he could get out of me or what I could give to him. Come see this man who actually knew all of this stuff about me and still wanted to have a conversation with me, and still was offering me something better and something different. Come meet this man. Could it be the Messiah? And they came out of that town, and they made their way towards him. Well, as she goes to town, meanwhile, back at the well, there's a conversation that goes on between Jesus and the disciples, and we'll skip over that, except verse number 35. There's just an important phrase in here. Jesus says to the disciples, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields, they are ripe for harvest. And what Jesus is saying as his disciples is, see how I just talked to this woman, and see how we got this conversation going, spiritual conversation going, and see how her life is changing, and see how she's becoming a follower of me. This is what I need you to do because Samaria is filled with people like this. And Judea and Galilee are filled with people like this. And this world is filled with people like this who are desperately going to a well that's not satisfying. And you need to tell them about me. And so Jesus says, hey, guess what, disciples? The Samaritans are in. And guess what, disciples? The women are in. And guess what, disciples? The really messed up people, they're into this kingdom. Me. Me is for everybody. And so, in verse number 39, we get a conclusion here. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony, which is interesting, Is before they actually come back and meet Jesus. But what was her testimony? Again, we have this phrase repeated, He told me everything that I ever did. And so, quickly here this morning, I want to say, here's the condition of this woman, because we can relate to it because for all of us either we are in or we have been or we have sensed what it's like to be in the same shoes that she's in but secondly we know people in this condition as well and Jesus charged his disciples as hey look around you it's the same for us look around Because you're going to know people like this. And thirdly, even if you can't think of anybody like that, well, just get out there and walk by a few wells because you're going to run into some people like this. So here are the people in our world who need Jesus. First of all, this is what we know about her. She was thirsty. And Jesus uses the idea metaphorically, but the truth was that she was literally thirsty physically thirsty and there are people in our world who have needs and they may be spiritual definitely but they may be physical and they may be emotional and in her case relational but the place where people are is they are a place of need and that's why we need Jesus but all of us can relate to that because we're all needy people and even with Jesus we're needy people we need to keep going back to him but she was a person with needs secondly she was marginalized Not only was she a Samaritan, she was a woman, but worse than that, she was a woman without friends. Because she came to the well at noon when nobody else was there. She arrived alone. And the well was the social gathering place of the women of the day. You came in the morning, you came in the evening, and you got together with your friends. How's your day going? What do you got going on? That kind of stuff. And she comes by herself. She was totally marginalized. And how many people do we have in our world who are marginalized? She was alone and lonely. Even the Samaritans didn't want to be with her. She was the outcast, I would say among outcasts. She was the outcast not among outcasts. That's how bad it was for her. And how many people, though, in our world today feel like the outsider? And maybe you have too. Like, I'm just not like anybody else. And nobody else understands me. Nobody else even pays attention to me. And how many alone, lonely people there are in our world? She was relationally challenged, deficient, actually. She was just a failure. Five husbands. There's a lot of baggage there with this woman. And you know, for all of us, I think we understand this, that life is about relationships. And when your relationships don't go well, life kind of stinks. I mean, And every time she had a relationship, it just completely fell apart. And she stood there as a failure. And how many people do we run across? How many times are we that people were like, I just feel like a failure. I feel like a failure in my marriage. I feel like a failure with my family. I feel like a failure with my work. I feel like a failure. And we can just have our whole list there going on. She felt like damaged goods and she knew it. And yet here's the thing that's, interesting to me. She was still spiritually curious. And sometimes we look at people and we're like, they would never be interested in hearing about the gospel, right? Because they're just off doing their own thing. You know why they're doing their own thing? Because the well that they go to isn't satisfying. And we just think, well, they would never be interested. And Jesus, was like, he goes and finds this woman and guess what? The one that we would have written off, she was like, yeah, I'm interested. Like, Is this the mountain I'm supposed to go to? Am I supposed to worship here? Jerusalem, please help me out here. And there are people in our world who are spiritually seeking as well. People who need Jesus. And we need to be reminded as we come to this story here this morning that they're out there, but they're at the wells that we walk by, or should be walking by. I think another interesting part of this is not just the condition of the woman, but it's the conversation that Jesus has with her. And so let me just walk through this conversation because sometimes this is what we say. You know, you're right, right? I, I know people that don't know Jesus, and I probably should be sharing Jesus with them, but I would have no idea what to say to them. There's an interesting thing here is because we can follow this conversation and it gives us some really good practical help for here's how to have a conversation with that person that you know that doesn't know Jesus. So let's dive in and look at this a little bit. By the way, this will actually just give you help on how to build a friendship. Uh, This is how practical this gets, but this conversation with Jesus, first of all, notice this, he looked for the woman. I think he expected her to be there, and I... Suppose he was going down. Maybe it was just the Holy Spirit saying, "You need to go this way," or maybe it was just like Jesus saying, "You know, all you people who keep walking around here, you're nuts." There's nothing wrong with walking through some area. There's nothing wrong with talking to these people, but he was actually, I think, looking for these women. He was looking for a an opportunity to share his faith. That is faith himself. We look for opportunities to share our faith. But I don't think we walk through life that way very well sometimes. And we need to be encouraged to do that. We we walk by wells all the time. But look for people. Engage with people. Talk to people. Don't just walk by them. So look for people in the path. Look for the outcast. Look for the person that maybe somebody else has shunned. Look for the person that nobody else is paying any attention to, but look for people in your path. Secondly, he established common ground. What do you talk about? Let's talk about the well. Let's talk about water. Hey, you thirsty? Uh, So am I. And they start at this very basic level, but the things that we have in common are the things that bring us together. And sometimes we're like, I could never have a spiritual conversation. Well, don't. To start with, talk about the Well, talk about the water hey you thirsty it's interesting to me when they come together the, the first line that they both have her first line is you're a Jew maybe you're a rabbi and uh you're a whole lot different from me and what's Jesus first line uh I'm thirsty how about you And we need to find the areas of commonality where we're all alike. Thirdly, he leveled the playing field. And this is fascinating to me. What's the first thing he did? He asked for a drink. He asked for a favor. Hey, could you help me? And it changed the power dynamic immediately. Because instead of him like, here I am and here you are, it's like, you know what? You have something that you could give me here. And I think there's an interesting thing where we come to relationships where we don't want to impose on people. And we don't want to, you know, drive people crazy with their neediness. But there are sometimes times they're like, hey, can you help me with this? Because you say to people, I value you. You matter. You have something to give me that I'm missing here. And in all of our relationships, we, we would do well to approach that way. And he does something by just asking a simple question. Something to be said about that, too. Just asking questions. Our world is really good about making statements. You notice that? That's what social media is. Let me make my statement. And sometimes we need to just ask a few questions. And he actually asked some questions. And you know what that did? It created curiosity in the conversation. It made her wonder. Now... We all have the ability to ask a question. And if we will ask questions, it will move people to deeper levels of spiritual conversation. So you can ask them, "Well, what's going on and say, well, tell me how that made you feel. Well, I just asked a question. I didn't state anything, but you know what? I just said to that person, I care enough to not just get information from you. I care enough to actually get you from you. And he goes on there and I think this is cool. He answered her questions. Now, when I was in college, I went to a school where we were always supposed to be out evangelizing all the time. And one of the things we were taught is when you're, having, when you're sharing the plan of salvation with people, sometimes they'll try to distract you and they'll raise a question. Just tell them, here's the answer. That's a really good question. We'll talk about that in a minute. I'm looking at that, that's not Jesus' way. She asked a question. He's like, you know, that's a really good answer. that's a really good question. In fact, let me answer that question for you. You don't have to worship on the mountain. You have to worship in Jerusalem. You just need me. But we need to ask questions. But we need to answer questions. But you know what? To answer questions, what we have to do, we have to listen. And I think a lot of us in our conversations, if we just work on listening, we get a whole lot further. And even if we're dealing with people who may not be Christ followers, just say, tell me, I'm listening, that would take us a whole lot further. Number six, he skipped the shame. I think what's interesting in this story here is he says, you have five husbands, and she's like, she doesn't retract. She's like, yeah. But I don't think he said it like, you wicked woman, what are you lying to me about? you got five guys out there. It's like, you know, you got five husbands, don't you? You had them. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about this now. And you see the shame is, is, is really sucked out of this story here. He's just there to help. And we do ourselves a disfavor in Christianity when we go around and we pronounce judgment on the world. We need to stop. We need to share Jesus Christ, and we can let the Holy Spirit do His work, and the Word of God can do its work, and we need to step back sometimes with the condemnation and with the shame, and we need to offer love, and we need to offer hope, and those types of things. And then number seven, He offered a better alternative. I have something for you. You have water that doesn't satisfy. You also have relationships that don't satisfy, but I can give you a relationship that satisfies. I'm going to ask uh, Larry and um, Linda to come on up here and join me here this morning. And I think if you grab, is there a, is there a microphone still over there? Grab that one on the way. It's just a microphone cap. Okay, we'll give you this one. And I want you to meet these folks. And uh, they took some time during the uh, Life Class Hour to, to share with people. And I got to listen, sit in on just a little bit of that. And, and he was asking those questions. I had like 5,000, but I just kept my mouth shut. And, uh, but uh, I would just like to talk to them a little bit about what they're doing. And uh, we've been supporting you guys as a church for how long? For
2: over 40 years.
1: Longer than I've been alive. <laughs> well, maybe not. Okay, so for 40 years and uh great thing tell us just a little bit about what you guys are doing and uh we're, we're going to try to be brief but we're going to we're going to say what we need to say all right so we've already warned the children's workers all right so if we go a little bit over here the only problem is the hamburgers might get a little bit cold that they're out there cooking right now but we'll
2: be okay okay thank you pastor brent yes uh, uh larry and linda jones we work with the wickliffe bible translators you have supported us for 40 years in ministry in the bible in the bible translation world Uh, Our current assignment is with Seed Company, which is an affiliate of Wycliffe organizations. And uh, Seed Company's specific uh, task is to connect generous giving partners here in the United States With bible translation projects around the world that are being primarily led and executed by speakers of the languages themselves not by a missionary that goes there but the people themselves want to do that work and they need finances and they need training and seed company is involved in making that happen and today seed company is involved in about 900 projects around the world in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Pacific Islands uh, supporting Bible translation and your work, your prayers and gifts to us are part of, that, uh, part of that process. So I think
1: this is interesting though, if you notice what he said, something we've been working on as a church. We already had up here Leon and Devin. Leon and Devin are from Guyana, and they are native Guyanese. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do even as a church is to find people in the world are, are Indian, indigenous uh, to uh, to the country where they're from. And it sounds like you guys are doing the exact same thing. It's like, where are the believers there? How can we use them where they are? I think that's oh, fascinating. Man. I love that concept.
2: And I think that's kind of a shift in missions, isn't it? Can you speak to that at all? Yes, it is. You know, in, in our lifetime, over the last 50 or 60 years, the, the weight of The presence of God's people in this world has shifted from North America and Europe to Asia, Africa, and Latin America. The majority of people who confess the name of Jesus live in those places. And many of them are growing in earnestness in their discipleship, they have education, and they're able to take leadership in their own own context. The church in America still has a role, but it's a different role today than it was uh, 50 years ago.
1: So, and I, I think that's really cool, isn't it? And uh, part of it is the, the missionary movement of the church back through the late 19, 19 whatever we were in there, um, was effective. So much that we have the church now reproduced in those areas, and the church can, can move out from there. Let's change directions just a little bit, okay? You just, we've been talking, we, I have been talking about the woman at the well. What about that story do you think connects to what's going on in what you guys are doing?
0: Um... You know, I think there's at least two ways that I can think of. One is that most of the language groups where we have translation projects, those people groups are the marginalized in their countries. They speak minority languages, they've been overlooked by their uh, national government, and often despised, very much like Mm. the Samaritan woman, often looked down upon. So that's one, one point of connection that I can see. And a second one is that as you give God's word to people in their heart language, it's like Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman in her heart language. Mm. He knew how to connect with her where she was. And that's what giving God's word to people in their own heart language, it just penetrates in a way that it never does in the national language.
1: So I'm going to ask you a question. I don't know. Am I still on here? Okay. Uh, I think you guys were having some conversation with Mark, and maybe this came up in the first hour too, but a lot of time when you guys are doing translation work now, you're working with the women in the villages. Is that the right way to say it? In these locations first. Can you kind of talk about that and why?
0: Um, Well, a few years ago, Larry, had kind of a transformative moment where he realized, whoa, our projects are all initiated initiated by men, led by men, all the translators are men, all the consultants are men, whoa, something's wrong here. And so we shifted and started having projects that were led by women, the translators were women, it was for women. This first was done in um, an area of India where the women there, well, you you have surely know from the news, women in in India are uh, very often abused and they are (laughs) very much mistreated. So to have a project led by women, focused on women was transformative to those women. It changed how they saw themselves, how society saw them, and it led many to the Lord in a Hindu, a a largely Hindu context. And what we did was we had some of our female consultants go over there and teach these women how to do Bible storytelling because they're illiterate. So translating written wasn't the right right way to start. So they learned stories from the Bible. They learned, their, their memory is phenomenal. They would learn them accurately and they they committed to memory large numbers of stories from the Bible. And between workshops, they went back to their villages and started listening groups. And each of these women, there was six language groups, four women from each language group. Each of these women started on average 10 listening groups to hear the stories they were telling. And um, through that, uh, many came to know the Lord. Initial pilot project now has been uh, replicated in other places. But. So, just before we dive off of that
1: story, um, how did that how did that affect those actual women? Just as
0: far as their their standing in the culture there, it made such a difference. Many of them, actually, their own husbands were. Whoa, well, who is this that I married to? Well, she has new confidence in herself. She is able to. Uh, do uh, things that just make a difference in the community. She would, she would go out and pray with, with some of the people that she had been uh, had in her listening groups and it changed her position in the village. She became a person that was, had her own way of, of having a ministry and she saw herself differently.
1: So I, I think that's got to be what Jesus is after here at the well, don't you think? Yeah. I mean it fits so well, doesn't it? Um, let me uh, ask a question here just with um, Larry, and, and uh, as we're running out of time here way too fast. You guys are coming to the picnic? All right, so all of your questions, please come and ask them. They're delightful people. You enjoy this. When you are talking about, con- we're talking about connecting to a woman at the well. When we're talking about connecting to a new group, maybe, that you're going, what is like the, the process of that? We've been talking about a process of a conversation. What is the process that you guys are following in what you're doing?
0: Um, well, because we now, not, not like the old days when we would send out missionaries to do the translation work. Now we work through the mother tongue speakers. We connect with partners and then the countries around the world to identify people groups that have both a need and a hunger for God's word in their own language. And then we bring around them resources, uh, both financial, um, the training and so on. And they become the ones who uh, lead the translation. And and they can start either with an oral translation project, which is like the women did, or they can start with a written one, depending on their context, what, what their situation is.
1: Okay. So we're out of time, Larry, but I want to give you one more question, okay? And you have to answer this one, even though it was hers, all <laughs> <That's> right? right. <laughs> so. The world is modernized computers all this kind of different stuff how
2: is that affecting what's going on in the translation world yeah thank you for asking pastor brett you know the the, uh the advent of information technology has profoundly changed bible translation across the last 50 years Uh, it certainly even when missionary translators were still the lead uh, way of doing translation. They were using computers and, we, and, and the computers accelerated the process of Bible translation and they made the translations far more uh, accurate because uh, you know, even the whole word processing thing uh, is something that has changed. You know, you know, Sixty years ago, uh, when translators would, would type out a translation, every revision they would type out and they would introduce errors as well as fixing, uh, fixing things. And so the idea of a word processor was phenomenal in changing things. Today, even more so, one of the things that it, actually in our most recent letter that we, uh, uh, that we sent you know, sent to the church is an update, there are computer programs today that can take a translation uh, in a particular language and can uh, adapt it into a related language, say similar to French and Spanish. So if there are languages in the same family, if you have one good translation in the family, you can get good rough drafts in, in, the, in the other languages of that family using the computer, cutting years off of the translation time for a whole New Testament or a Bible, uh, because they, they, they get a running start. By, uh, by leveraging the investment that's already been made in that translation. This, this is only going to, ha- going to uh, continue to accelerate as we, uh, as we go into the coming years. The computer technology is getting better and better and better. And we're just going to see ways of, uh, of accelerating Bible translation in many, many different ways.
1: Thanks so much for sharing. I'm sorry we don't have more time, but that's fascinating. It, we live in, a, in an awesome time, don't we? Sometimes we look at all the problems in the world, I'm like, but look at all the opportunities, too. And uh, the world has never been closer to us than it is, and so taking the, the good news uh, from Judea to Samaria, Acts 1-8, to the rest of the world, right? Part of the process. Thanks so much for joining us here this morning and for sharing with us. All right, we're going to ask the ushers, uh, not the ushers, the worship team. We're going to ask the ushers to come sing. That should be good. Okay, we're going to ask the uh, worship team to come on up here. Let me just wrap up what we've been talking about here this morning and conclude it. Here's the first thing, all right? Your story matters to Jesus. No matter who you are here this morning, your story matters to Jesus. And the story of a woman who had been through five husbands who was a Samaritan and an outcast to the world mattered so much to Jesus that he said, I have to go here. And it's the same for you. Jesus cares about your story. Secondly, your story isn't over yet. No matter what your situation is that you came in here this morning, it's not done. God's still working. God's still writing. God's still doing things in your life. And maybe you haven't trusted Christ yet, and that's the next step in your story. Maybe you have trusted Christ. Your story is continuing. We're still talking about a story that happened 2,000 years ago. Your story continues. And thirdly, your story is meant to be shared. There's that little sidebar about when the disciples come back and then Jesus says, see, the fields are ripe to harvest. It doesn't even fit with the story other than the fact that Jesus is making a point like doubly here in this story, and as John includes it, the story of Jesus is meant to be shared. It's meant to be shared with the people groups of the world. It's meant to be shared with the marginalized. It's meant to be shared with people of different races. It's meant to be shared with people of different economic. things. It's meant to be shared with our neighbors. It's meant to be shared with our loved ones. It's meant to be shared and we can't keep it to ourselves. Here's the conclusion. If there's one line I want you to get sticks in your head this morning, it's this. All that time, she had been looking for someone who had been looking for her. And that's true with every person in this world. Everybody's not looking for something. They're looking for someone who is looking for them. Maybe you, maybe I can introduce them. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of Jesus. Thank you for your determination to push back all of the ugliness that we exercise as people where we exclude and where you included. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus Christ. He's looking for you. Would you give your heart to Him? If you have trusted Jesus Christ, He's looking for the people that you walk by every day. Would you start a conversation with them? God, you say that the fields are ready for harvest. Please convince us of that and give us the courage to step out into our world to the people that are marginalized or to the people that we work with it doesn't matter. Give us grace I pray in Jesus name. Amen. We're going to stand up, we're going to sing a song and then we're going to finish with baptism this morning and we're going to hear a fascinating story about how this works.